Corinthians 15 and can be found on page 1154 of your church Bibles. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you must believe. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God, that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life... We have hope in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has intended, has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, Just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hope, 
What have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses, as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all the flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has come one of kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from stars in the splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we are born in the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has become clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Excellent. Thank you, Stephen. Just down here. Well, good morning again. Uh, 
You have a little outline in your leaflets there. So if you're the note-taking type, please do use that. Please keep your Bibles open as well to page 1154. Uh, It'll be really helpful as we work through a bit of what Paul's just said to us. Well, what's your response to death? A bit of a grim topic to bring up on a Sunday morning. As humans, I think we have a tendency to defy death. Uh, We chase immortality. And as I've thought and reflected a bit on the historical chase for immortality, I reckon we've chased it in three major ways. Uh, So first of all, we've got the classic quest for immortality, the hunt for the magical, the mythical, and the science fiction. Uh, Who here has watched any of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies? Just hands up. Yep, generally. Yep. In the Pirates of the Caribbean, despite being filled with Johnny Depp playing the role of Johnny Depp, uh, the piracy, the feature, they all feature a quest for immortality. Whether it's the cursed treasure of Cortez, the beating heart of Davy Jones, or the mythical fountain of youth. On a slightly more science fiction-y sort of side of things, I recently came across an article called The Technology of Eternal Life. Now, this man, Ray Kurzweil, Kurzweil, is convinced that there are only three things separating humans right now from immortality. Um, Three things that we need. We need healthy and active lifestyles to ensure we don't die prematurely. We need biotechnology to replace our failing organs. And we need nanotechnology to ensure the reversal of any micro diseases or aging processes in our bodies. Pretty simple, right? Uh, Ray says he has a leg up on the rest of us as well with an active and healthy lifestyle, uh, courtesy of 250 supplements he takes every day, um, waiting in hope that by 2020, biotechnology and nanotechnology are advanced enough to ensure human survival. Make of that what you will. The second way Aussies chase immortality is in a legacy. We come to terms with our death. We recognize it's going to happen. Uh, And we decide to instead invest all our energy and our time in leaving a legacy, whether it's our kids or grandkids, whether it's having a fully paid off and completely renovated home, a, a castle, a man's castle, or maybe it's in our work and making a lasting impact on the world around us. And the third way I think we chase immortality is through living as if death just isn't there. Uh, I think this is something of a catch cry for Generation Y, whether it's Robin Williams whispering, Carpe diem, in Dead Poet Society, uh, or John Lennon calling us all to imagine all the people living for today. They call to live for now, to live fully experiencing life as powerfully as possible, ignoring death. Now, as much fun as it's been to think through each of these, I can't help but feel there's a certain hopelessness in them. The quest for immortality time and time again has failed. Uh, And as for leaving a legacy through uh, paying off the home or working incredibly hard, I mean, who's to say that's going to last beyond a generation? Houses get sold, demolished, technology advances come, the workforce changes, new discoveries are made. And as for living in denial of death, it doesn't really make any difference to when death comes. But then we have a fourth way to search for immortality. We come to passages like 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54, where we hear that Jesus has defeated death. Death has been swallowed up in victory. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? 
for a world hunting for immortality. But what Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus gives immortality freely to all who believe in him. And because Jesus gives immortality freely, we don't need to live in fear of death. We can instead live fully for God. So point one on your outlines, the chase for immortality is over because Jesus gives immortality freely. That's one of the key parts of the gospel, the central hope in Christianity. Our only hope for Christians. The first verses, these first verses of 1 Corinthians 15, set up the rest of the chapter really well. So we're just going to spend a couple of moments thinking about them. Verses 3 to 5. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. And I'll just cut it off there. Just reading through these verses here, we are given Paul's executive summary of the Christian gospel. And there's two parts to it. They parallel each other. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through it. We have a statement of fact. Christ died. Christ was raised on the third day. We have the promise referred to. Both are according to the scriptures. And we have the evidence of both. The evidence that Jesus is dead, Christ was buried. The evidence that he was raised, well, that's what the rest of the chapter goes on to say. He appeared to to Cephas and to the Twelve, and then after that, 500 brothers and sisters, and so on. But there is one difference between the two. Did you notice it? Paul immediately gives us the reason why Christ died. He died for sins, for our sins. But Paul doesn't immediately tell us why Christ was raised. Why do you think Paul doesn't say that? Well, the reason why Paul doesn't say anything here is because he then goes on to spend the rest of the chapter explaining why Christ was raised. Um, yeah, he's spent enough time talking about the forgiveness of sins earlier in 1 Corinthians. He's ready to, to tackle this question of resurrection. And he says that Jesus was raised to life so that all followers of Jesus could have hope of living forever. In fact, Jesus' resurrection is so central to the Christian faith that it's like the, the important block, the important weight-bearing block at the bottom of a Jenga tower. You know that last one, the one that no one would dare try to pull out? You pull that out, it all falls over. That's what Paul says. It all will come crumbling down if Christ isn't raised. Our hope is useless. But, look with me at verses 20 to 23. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong with him. Now, Paul says it repeatedly throughout this chapter. Uh, Christ is the firstfruits. Jesus was raised of the firstfruits of those who die, so that all who belong to him will also be raised just as he was. Jesus was raised to life so that we could be too. Now, Paul uses a certain logic in verses 21 and 22 to prove this. He says that in one man, Adam, the first man, Genesis 2 and 3, all people died. You get that time and time again as you read through Genesis. He had this son, he had this many children, he lived this long, and he died. 
His son had this many children, this long, died. Died, died, died. All people died in the first man. But in the second man, Jesus, everyone who belongs to him will be made alive. Now, something you might not know about me um, is that I was born in England. I was born overseas. Now, I didn't have a lot of control over when I was born. Mum and Dad complained that I should have come a couple of weeks earlier, but, you know, what can I do? It was entirely my parents' decision, geographically speaking, where I was going to be born. I had no choice in it. And Paul says it's the same case with death. Uh, We are all, by default, born into a dying world. We don't get a say in it. We don't get to pick which, which one of these countries we're born in. No, we're born into Adam's rebellion against God, into sin. And we are born to die after three score and ten years or so. No wonder so many of us are chasing immortality. Or at very least, running away from death. But as we said, we have another option. We don't have to live in this country. Jesus offers us a new country. He offers to treat us like him rather than like Adam. Well, he does this by his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus died on the cross to take away sins. My sins, your sins, our rejection against God, our rebellion against him as the rightful ruler of our lives. And Jesus was raised so that for anyone who has found in him, anyone that belongs to him, anyone that's accepted him, we can be raised to new life. It's like Jesus grabs our birth certificate that says, born into Adam's line, Adam's country. He wipes that bit out, completely erases it, and writes down, resurrection. Born into eternal life, a new life, immortality. He offers it freely to everyone who believes. How good is that? Paul talks a bit about what this immortal life is like in verses 35 to 49. We don't have time to take on all of it. But the key thing to notice right now is verse 49, just down there. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Have you ever wondered what's it going to be like when we're raised to new life, when we're living forever? You just look at Jesus. Just read about what it was like for him. Uh, Read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. He is the proof that if we will live forever, if we just trust him. Read an eyewitness account like Luke's biography, Luke's gospel of Jesus. We've got free copies up the back. Please grab one, take it. Get to know Jesus. So the question for all of us here today, for everyone who chases immortality, defies death, do you belong to Jesus? We've seen it quite clearly. All who belong to Jesus, everyone who trusts him, everyone who's accepted his death for our sins, everyone who trusts his resurrection, all who are in Jesus' country, we have immortality freely. So do you. I've been reminded in the last 48 hours that uh, even living in Australia doesn't guarantee a long life. Five people dead. Some guy was on a rampage, just driving his car way too fast. We don't know where those people are uh, in terms of where they are with Jesus. I don't claim to know. But if that was me, if that was you, 
would you know that you had immortality? If you're not so sure, uh, can I implore you, do business with Jesus. Talk to him. Get to know about his life by reading Luke's biography. Talk to John or myself or Mark or someone here today. It's just too important to not think about. And if you are someone who belongs to Jesus, if you're someone who says, yes, I've accepted him, do you live with his confidence? What happens to Jesus is exactly what's going to happen to you. He was raised, so we'll be raised. It's a sure bet, a done deal. We have eternal life with Jesus. Death has no more power to maim our lives or mock our work. We are freed from the race against time, the race against death, freed to live for Jesus. For me personally, I've been so encouraged by the way so many people at the Bay live this out. Uh, Anne Pohl has been an incredible prayer warrior, putting Christ first, even in the midst of sickness, as someone who knows she's going to live forever with Christ. Dean Trouse is always such a great encouragement, always ready to share a smile, uh, always ready to talk about how great the power are. Such an encouragement. Chris and Gloria Lewis, Mahima, I could go on. Fellow second fruits of Jesus Christ's resurrection, we can live confident lives because of Jesus. We can live confident lives for eternity. And point two on your outlines now. Since Jesus gives us immortality freely, we don't live in fear of death any longer. So after finishing his discussion on some of the mechanics behind the resurrection for people who haven't physically died yet, Paul explains the final victory of Jesus, his final victory over death. Look with me at verses 54 to 57. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality and the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is that when this resurrection takes place, when Jesus raises all those who belong to him, when this happens, death will be gone. No more death it will be swallowed up in victory, defeated, devoured. Jesus will have crushed death entirely. Can you just picture that? A world with no more death. Jesus will have crushed it entirely. And that's why Paul quotes from Isaiah 25 there. In verse 54, it's a promise from God of a time when death will be defeated, when God will save his people. This is that day, the day of resurrection, the day when Jesus comes back again, is the day when we will fully experience God's salvation. Isn't that great? Now let's zoom in for a moment down in verse 56. Uh, The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. I don't know about you, but For me, I've always found this verse a little bit puzzling, a little bit confusing. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's slow it down. The sting of death is sin. What's the problem with death? I mean, just 
bear with me for a moment. If there's eternal life, if there's life forever with God afterwards, then death's kind of just a door. And what's on the other side is even better. There's no real problem with death on that front. Don't get me wrong, death is uncomfortable. It involves separation from those we love. But it's a matter of years of separation if there's eternal life on the other side for everyone. And that's something to look forward to and long for. But what Paul's saying here is that death's kind of like a scorpion or a bee. Uh, I don't know how much you guys kind of treasure your time with bees or scorpions. It packs a sting. And the sting of death is sin. Why is this? Well, it's because sin keeps us from eternal life with God. So when we've died, we're all going to face God. And when God asks, why should I let you into my kingdom, given the life you've lived, given your sin, given your rebellion against me, given your rejection, sin is the sting that keeps us from eternal life. And the power of sin is the law. The power that goes into sin comes from the law. Now, this isn't Paul saying that law is bad, we should do away with it. Christians need to be on about loving other people instead of laws. No, Paul affirms the law is good. What Paul is saying is that sin is powerfully fueled by the law. Uh, One of my favorite ways uh, to think about this is all these beautiful signs in the old Royal Adelaide Hospital. Um, Has anyone seen these? They're about every five meters, as far as I can tell, in the Royal Adelaide Hospital. When walking through there, besides the beautiful beige and creamy, pinky walls that you get to enjoy, there's one thing you notice everywhere. It's these yellow signs hanging from the ceiling every few meters that say unauthorized entry into the ceiling space prohibited. Now, putting aside what must have happened for those signs to have to be put there in the first place, every few meters, not just, you know, one big one at the door, it never occurred to me to crawl into the ceiling space of a hospital before. I just, I never wanted to do it. I never thought about it. I never considered it. Maybe uh, consultants or registrars among you might want to crawl in the ceiling space and hide. I'm getting a bit of a nod from Sarah. Um, but when I see those signs, there's, there's just a voice inside me that switches on and goes, I could climb into that ceiling, couldn't I? Who'd stop me? I'm pretty tall. I reckon I could get myself up there. I've got a, a moderate amount of upper body strength. I could pull myself through. See, I couldn't break that law if it didn't exist, if there was no sign telling me not to climb into the ceiling. I wouldn't have ever thought about it. But it is there. And it's the same with God's law. God's law, when we know it, helps us to see just how sinful we are. It defines our sin. It feels the power of sin. It gives sin ammo for that last day before God. But as Paul says right after this in verse 57, thanks be to God, God gives us victory over death, sin and law-breaking through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then as we saw before, he has died for your sins. If you belong to Jesus, then you'll be raised again with no sin to your name. If you belong to Jesus, you don't have to chase immortality. How good is that? Well, the kicker here, though, is that we can't really beat the sting of death, sin, through anything else. We can't say, I kept laws X, Y, and Z when we've broken A through W. We can't say, I was a pretty good person. I was a pretty decent bloke. Because we still sinned. We still rebelled against God. We need God's help. 
We need Jesus to die for our sins. And he did. How good is that? Now, if you've accepted Jesus, there is no more sting to death. There is nothing you need to complete, nothing you need to do, nothing more you could spend your life doing to be right with God because you are right with God. As John reminded before, as he commissioned me and Chantel, uh, don't lose the joy of what God's already done for us in Jesus. So after saying all this, after 57 verses of building up and thinking about this victory over death, how does Paul wrap it up? We have immortality already if we have Jesus, so how should we live our lives? What's the right response? What's our takeaway? Verse 58 has the answer for us. First of all, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Paul commands us to stand firm, to remain following Jesus, to keep faithfully trusting the gospel message. To keep trusting Jesus. As Chantel and I have reflected on our time at Trinity Bay, we're both so deeply thankful uh, for the gospel flavor of Trinity Bay. Uh, If there's one thing above all else that marks out the bay, it's how God's gospel shapes us. If there's a flavor to the welcoming and conversations, it's Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Someone who was recently visiting the bay uh, told me there's something different about this church. You can actually have a conversation with people about Jesus and the Bible after the service is finished. So, Sue Pike, Alex Matthews, Hamish McIver, Sarah Crook, stand firm in the gospel of Jesus. And the second conclusion that Paul draws is to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, this is the punchline. This is what it means to have truly found immortality. It's to give ourselves fully to God's work. And what's God's work? God's work is, as we've seen here, saving people for eternity in Jesus Christ, to be with relationship with him forever. It's that gospel we looked at back in verses 3 to 5. And if God does all the saving, if God's the one who's uh, given Jesus for forgiveness of sins, raised Jesus as evidence that we'll be raised, what do we do? Skim your eyes back to the start of that passage again. uh, Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul says he wants to remind them of the gospel he preached to them. The gospel which they received. Uh, By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word, I preached to you. Verse 2. Now skip down to verse 11. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you have believed. Our involvement in God's work of saving people is to share the good news about God's salvation. To share what he's done. It's to share with our friends and our families, our colleagues, peers, co-workers, employers, employees, superiors, subordinates, neighbors, milkmen, milkmaids. It's to share with all the gospel of Jesus, the good news of God's salvation. When Paul tells us this, he lets us in on a little secret. The work of the Lord, God's work of saving people, this work alone is not in vain. Now, I don't mean to discredit anyone's job here at all. Uh, Whether paid or unpaid, working at home, raising children, or 
going into the office by commute to work at the nine to five, or whether going out to do some backbreaking labor or whatever it is, your work is beneficial. It's beneficial to society. For now. But eventually, doctors and nurses, people are going to die. Eventually, farmers, crops will fail. Livestock will die. Drought will mock all your work. Politicians will be elected and inaugurated and regimes will end. Theories will be disproved, new discoveries will be made. Houses demolished, overpasses collapse. We've been reminded of that recently. This is no excuse for us to be lazy on the job, by the way. But all these works, ultimately, in the light of eternity, they're going to be in vain. They're part of living in this world, but not part of the next. Yet God's work of saving lives lasts forever. God's work will never be undone. God's work is not in vain. And everyone who is a follower of Jesus is invited to join in this work. To help others stop chasing immortality in all the wrong places. So what does it mean for us to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord for for you today, tomorrow? I've just got a couple of suggestions what it could mean. Is it possible to give up a a day of work once a month or once a week or once a fortnight, whatever it is? Uh, If if you're working full-time, would it be possible in order to serve at church or to to kind of be more involved in gospel ministry, to lead a Bible study group midweek, to try and do something like that during the day? Or parents, uh, instead of enrolling your kids at a private school renowned for high academics and high achievements and volleyball and bassoon or whatever it is, what would it look like to enroll them in the local public school for the sake of having a witness there? What would it look like uh, for those of us at the start of the year who are thinking about budgeting soon? What would it look like for us to budget in a way that gives as much money and as much time as possible to the work of the Lord, to having people out there sharing God's good news. To finish up this morning, I just want to read you a little bit of a letter that I wrote all the youth families as a goodbye. Uh, This was written towards the end of last year, at the end of youth. I've written a letter to each of your children tonight, challenging them to not be afraid to stand firm and to make up their mind about radically and sacrificially following Jesus. Reflecting on my own time as a high schooler, there were lots of people who challenged me about my grades, about my career after school, about sport or drama or musical relationships. There weren't many who called me to be prepared to get average grades, to maybe go to uni or maybe TAFE or apprenticeship. There weren't many who called me to give up some of the three nights of football training a week plus 12 hours of music practice during the week. There weren't many who called me to give these up for the sake of giving God the best of my time and serving at church and evangelizing friends. Maybe over the coming holidays, you could chat with your children about what it could look like for them to radically and sacrificially follow Jesus. Maybe there's not much that needs changing, But what could be better to talk about as we celebrate Christmas? Remembering the God who gave up all his rights for us and became a man so that we could be saved and be brought into right relationship with him forever. Let's talk to God.
Dear God, thank you that because of Jesus, our time chasing immortality is over. Thank you for saving us to live with you forever. And thank you that you want to save all people. Help us to stand firm in your gospel, no matter what comes. Help us to give ourselves fully to your work. Thank you that the work done to save others is never in vain. Please don't let our jobs or our schools or our friendships prevent us from joining in your work. Thank you, God, for Trinity Bay Church. In Jesus' name, amen.